Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. Are you ready to tackle the naked time? Yes, and thankfully I have inhibitions this week, which will be very essential to recording a podcast. I'm very glad to hear it. But as is always the case on Talking Trek to You, we are not going to be tackling the episode alone. We are joined by Rachel Novak. Say hello, Rachel. Hi, everybody. I'm Rachel. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Excellent. I'm very also happy have to my hear inhibitions it. working. <laughs> we are a fully inhibited podcast this week, so we can all be we can all be greatly relieved at that. Um, thank you for joining us, uh, Rachel. Um, we're going to sort of start off with you, as we always do, with our guests, and um, just ask you what's what's your history with Star Trek? Where do you come from with the show? So, actually, one of the first shows I can remember watching with my family was Star Trek Next Generations. So we watched it every week and. At some point when I was rewatching it in college, I'd have the funny experience of watching episodes and then realizing that I remembered seeing them when I was four. And that I had very, you know, the, the way a four-year-old understands what's going on is very different than how an adult understands it. So that was always kind of a fun level of deja vu. So I really, I really grew up with it. Um, I spent many hot summer nights watching reruns of Voyager on UPN at like midnight. Um, so there's just always been a fair amount of Star Trek in the background, even if it hasn't been maybe like a primary interest of mine. I've definitely been, and we went and saw all the movies. Although my mom would like me to stress for the record that she is not a Trekkie, even though <laughs> she saw it, she saw the original series, you know, when it originally aired and she watched all the reruns in college. And then, you know, we were watching Next Generation when I was a kid. So um, she used to have a friend of hers tape it for her because we didn't get reception up where we lived so but not a trekkie i mean it sounds like a trekkie <laughs> she's very she's very I mean, adamant on this point not a trekkie I, f I feel like it's a very like old school way to be a nerd like, no i'm not a nerd i like all of these nerdy interests like i mean obviously track for your mother but also things like comic books like i know we're like generally popular once upon a time and then became niche and then are now generally popular again like things like it comes and goes in waves. I feel like, and I like people. I don't know. It feels like our parents' generation does not want to be associated with nerd culture, and it's become like now it's taken over the world, and everyone wants to be associated with it. I don't know I, which way is better. <laughs> I have to say, I I very much agree, and also I'm not sure which way is better. Um, it did lead to <laughs> the funny thing where you know I got into reading a lot of sci-fi and fantasy based on just books I'd find around the house. My mom was always like, oh, you should read more real books. And she was just kind of always poking mm -hmm. at me about that. And then it wasn't until I was like 17 that I realized they were her books. <laughs> so <laughs> she just brought this on herself. And now I'm, <laughs> I'm on a podcast talking about Star Trek. Like she brought it on herself. Well, it happens to the best. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Um, so that gets us off to our start. And um, well, uh, Kev, would you care to give us our usual summary, please? Of course. So... The Enterprise is investigating the planet Psi 2000. They go to a research team station where they're all frozen because of a lack of life support system, but all the crew are frozen in unusual positions. Uh, and a poor hapless, if he's not literally, he's wearing a red hazmat suit, so we can call him a red shirt, <laughs> takes his glove off. Yeah, 
takes his glove off in full um, disregard for lab protocol. And this one of the stupidest things I've ever seen. Touches a bunch of red goo and gets it on himself. And now he's infected. When he comes back onto the ship, uh, this hapless uh, Lieutenant Joe uh, starts acting irrational and uh, paranoid. He uh, is, winds up stabbing himself and dies mysteriously, even though the stab wound is fixed. Meanwhile, he has infected other members of the crew, starting with Sulu, who becomes a swashbuckler, and Lieutenant Kevin Riley, who becomes very Irish. Uh, this, in turn, infects uh, Christine Chapel, becomes very horny. Spock starts crying, and Kirk becomes angry. And, and uh, that's we'll get into the specific details. That's the gloss over way of putting it. Uh, as the crew realizes their inhibitions are being sort of taken away by this mysterious virus, uh, McCoy is able to develop a cure. While during all of this, it's interfering with the Enterprise slowly crashing into the planet. Um, thankfully, they are given the cure just in time to sort of right themselves and focus on the task at hand, which is getting out of the planet's dying orbit by creating a time warp in a way I'm not quite sure how that happens, but they travel back three days in time and Kirk is like, huh, that's a great technology we invented. Let's keep that in mind for the future. The end. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah. Funny, funny how that just conveniently got invented. Anyway, we'll gloss over that for the time being and doubtless reach it when we're talking about the episode. Um, yo, uh, Rachel, let's start with you good self. Um, how did you find this episode? Did you enjoy it? I found it really interesting. I don't know if I really enjoyed it as a cold episode of television. Um, there's a fair amount of, of randomness that comes across, especially in terms of um, it's like episode number four, I think. And generally, I, I think this kind of episode, because it's you know quite a, a common sort of idea, works really well when you have established characters where you're like, oh, this is such an interesting exploration. And the way this show uses it, it almost comes across as exhibition, um, exposition, uh, edit, exposition. Um, and, or at least that's how it like initially comes across. But I actually started digging into that and I was thinking about it and I don't know if that's actually what it's doing. Um, but I'll, I'll save that for some other kind of discussion. Um, it's also really cool to watch actors chew scenery. And, you know, you mm -hmm. can definitely tell the degree to which some of them were just like, yep, just go crazy. Just, just keep turning up the volume on that. Um, and of course, this is the swipe of episode that last, like, launches, you know, a thousand fanfics, right? Like, this is, if you want to see why Star Trek becomes kind of the founding modern fandom, you know, it's, it's in episodes like this. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to dig into there, and I, love, I guess let me start with my reaction, and we'll dig into, like, all the points brought up, which are all so good points that I'll probably spend the rest of the episode talking about. But yeah, um, I did have fun watching this. I don't know. I think just, like, seeing the these characters who I'm, I mean, I'm becoming more familiar with, I guess. I, we don't have to rehash my weird history of Star Trek. But I'm becoming more familiar with Act Out like this. It really, it's just very fun. Um, I find a lot of the scenes with sort of Takei running around with a sword, with uh, with Nimoy just having like the cryodomes off. Like they can range between comedic and dramatic, but they all are such a great showcase for the actors involved. And even if there's like the plot is so thin here, um, it has a great vibe to it. It has a great energy to it. I, I don't know. Just for the whole fifty minutes, I was very entertained. 
Yeah, I think it does have a good energy to it, but I think it's also nice to see an episode sort of fairly early on like this, where we get the impression that space is actually something which is dangerous, which actually, you know, we talk about the final frontier a lot, but the emphasis is more often on final than frontier. It, more often than not, it's, you know, the fact that they're out into space. They're, you know, the, you know the, obviously we can talk about, you know, the tradition of the Western and the way that Star Trek emerges from that. And it's, it's, the, it's, that, that, it's the next one. It's the last one that we need to tackle. But here we really get a sense that it's actually a frontier as as part of that kind of western origin so there's actually things out there which are scary which are unknown you know there's the line in the episode about um you know the instruments are only designed to pick up things that we are aware of not things that we're not aware of um which is slightly weird but anyway but you know it, it's kind of reinforcing that idea that that you know they are exploring really at the boundaries and well beyond the boundaries of knowledge i think that works well as a, a concept and it's kind of been something uh, which has come up in um, at the very least um, I suppose where no man has gone before and 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 Charlie X both of which have you know kind of unintended consequences for characters who have sort of gone out into the universe and, and come up against something which they simply do not have the capacity to understand or even realize that it would exist prior to encountering it. So I, I, I kind of like the sense that, that space is big and scary and even something as simple as just turning up to watch a planet destroy itself can can carry that kind of risk. This is a great point. This I mean, it's something I've been thinking about, how all these early Star Trek episodes like deal with these truly unknowables like I mean, you'd practically call it fantasy, the way, like, characters... I mean, we've seen it twice happen, how characters get godlike powers. That's 50% of the episodes we've covered. <laughs> and then <laughs> with the other ones being, like, this strange virus that no one understands we have a cure for. And um, the man trap dealing with this strange creature that no one understands yet. I feel like with science fiction now, especially franchise science fiction... It's like everything in Star Wars has an explanation. And if it doesn't, there'll be a comic explaining it. There'll be a book explaining it. You'll you'll get an explanation later in the season. And even with Star Trek now, because there's just so much lore to draw on, why not use an old alien? Why not use an old virus, an old explanation for this thing? Instead of doing... Like, everything needs to get explained. I think that's... It's an explicable universe. Right. And Star Trek, the original series, is such an inexplicable universe that you just highlighted. And that's really fun. It's like such a good change of pace from all of like the modern stuff I've been watching. And just, it really does enhance that mystery of like not knowing. Like this is such a different episode if they, someone recognizes halfway and, oh, this is the crazy virus. It makes you crazy. And we have the cure for that. Or we can synthesize the cure for that rather than something they're truly discovering in real time. I have a, a whole theory about Star Trek, actually, and that, you know, people talk about all the really crazy episodes from the original series and that that wouldn't happen in, you know, modern Trek. And it does, though. It's in the holodeck. That's why there's so many holodeck episodes, is if you want a planet of gangsters or whatever, and mm -hmm. you don't want to have to bother with explaining why there's a random planet worshipping the U.S. Constitution or whatever, um, you know, you're just like, oh, it's on the holodeck. The holodeck went crazy. And that allows them that space to explore more of the, the fantasy. Um, and of course you have, you know, I think, I think part of what makes the original series 
so free with that is that they're not actually, they don't actually care about explaining it because what they're really interested in, as in this episode, is something about like human nature or, mm-hmm. you know, in, to be fair, in a very pop psychology sort of way, they're not, you know, they're there to entertain. Right. Um, but, you know, it's very much, you can see that Roddenberry kind of interest in, you know, humanity and exploring these facets of humanity and, you know, even the, you know, very concept of having, you know, the triad of, of you know, Kirk and Spock and, and McCoy, right, is about, you know, the <laughs> the ego and the id and the superego and, and just that balance of emotion and logic, um, you know, and so like that's very much, and when that's your primary question, which is what I think a lot of modern series have kind of lost is that, you know, science fiction can be so fun because you're exploring crazy ideas and like, what is it for things to be truly alien? But you're also bringing it home to kind of that personal side. And when you're just like, uh, what does it mean that the water on this planet isn't, you know, you're like, okay, you, you've kind of lost the purpose of what does this, what story does this allow us to tell, which is where I'm going to go slightly sideways and be like, I feel like Farscape did the best version of this in some ways. Um, yeah. <laughs> Love Farscape. Farscape Farscape is a top five sci-fi series of all time for me. So you won't you won't get any arguments there. But it it's about that idea that um you know the environment is is something that in and of itself impacts the people around it. And that that kind of whole Silver Age sci-fi thing where you know a lot of the ideas which drive science fiction aren't exploring um technology. They aren't necessarily exploring um you know even even you know the sort of what we would take to be the basics things like spaceships and transporters and all that like that's not those those are props those are functional things that you need in order to be able to tell the story within the genre but what you actually have is okay we have this thing there's this scary environment what stories does that open up well in this case it opens up you know drunk irish singing and 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 a shirtless george takai well you know okay that's fine but it's still it's still rooted in the idea that you know if you're removing your inhibitions what does that say to the crew so we so yeah we get drunken irish singing and we get a bit of swashbuckling but actually those are kind of really the distractions because the 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 core of the episode is really what gets revealed about kirk and what gets revealed about spock Mm -hmm. so really it's 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 driving their characterization again you know a very early point in the show we get to we get to learn you know really significant things about both of those characters and and that's i think the fundamental difference it is coming from that kind of silver age and you know a lot of the other writers like uh, Ursula K. Le Guin and and coming from that kind of tradition Philip K. Dick as well you know it's all about you know what impact those environments what impact those societies have on specific characters and and I think that's why this kind of episode is able to overcome its you know fairly conspicuous scenery chewing <laughs> and 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 all the rest of it because underneath all that there really is a core attempt to try and tell us something about our two principal characters. I have a really contrarian take. Mm-hmm. If if mm-hmm. if if this is a good point to 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 share it. Absolutely. So I think effectively the episode does you know, end up establishing things about Kirk and Spock and, you know, giving this entry into their psychology. I don't know if that's what intended to do. I was thinking about it because of, and when we touched on sort of how random a lot of the things that the characters kind of seem to do, that there doesn't de- seem to be like a, a, a very 
consistent pattern in how it affects people or what's revealed. I mean, think about the guy that stabbed himself with a dull knife, right? They say, oh yeah, this was, you know, an element of his personality, but now it's been like dialed up to 200 versus like, you know, this causes Nurse Chapel to be like, ah, I'm going to do a confession here. And I was like, is this meant to be something that's been a long running, you know, feeling? Because like that would seem to be, you know, like that this is a revealed love or or whatever. And you can run this through and then you're like, but then the, this guy who's like, ah, I want to, you know, he's the, the, the guy that keeps singing Kathleen. And then it's like, I'm captain now. And also we're going to get ice cream every day. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, is that his secret? Like, I think there's a tendency because this is how this is mostly used and it's most effectively used is to be like, what does this reveal secretly about these characters? Like, what are their interior lives? But when I knew I was going to talk about this episode, I actually went and talked to my mom and asked her about what her initial impressions of it, like what she remembered from, you know, back before Star Trek was Star Trek, um, you know, as much as she could. And she was like, ah, oh, you know, it was just, she was like, it wasn't one of the better episodes. And she said, it was just like all full of um, basically that it was pop psychology, right? She's like, oh, it's repression and stuff like that. And I was like, that's interesting. I hadn't considered the degree to which you could also interpret the kind of randomness of what happens with the characters as reflecting a kind of pop psychology version of the id, which is just like that everybody has all these random contradictory impulses that aren't necessarily part of a true self, but just are you know, there and then, you know, they have kind of like the ego that's, you know, is, is mediating them and, you know, kind of putting it in line with the true personality. And as I said, this is, this is my very contrary opinion. I kind of think that's what the episode is at least attempting to do is to be like, wow, look at all the crazy stuff that's going on, you know, underneath it's complete random. It's completely chaos. I don't know if it necessarily you know, especially when you look at like Sulu, right? And at one point, I think Spock says like, ah, yes, he's always wanted to be, you know, an 18th century swash buckler or something like that. But they also mentioned that this is his hobby du jour. They're like, ah, yeah, last week it was botany. You know, and so I kind of was wondering like how to make sense of this. Um, but I can also see, you know, so if that's maybe what they were attempting, if that was like the theory of self, you know, and that fits very much with the kind of thing Star Trek is interested in doing is kind of exploring some of this pop psychology levels of stuff. It also is like the least interesting version of this episode. And so I can 100% see why, especially, you know, I, I wasn't able to find a lot of good information on the production history of this episode because it becomes so mythologized that you'll see like 15 versions of the same thing. Um, and one thing, though, that came up a couple of times in a couple of different versions is like, for example, Spock's whole thing was supposed to be more silly, you know, and that Leonard right. Nimoy was like, I want to do a more serious version of this. And of course, because he's an actor, right? And actors like right. intrinsic motivations and intrinsic tensions. They don't like, yeah, people are random, you know, like underneath it all. <laughs> um, but like, that's what becomes such an interesting you know angle to think about and to build on and which is why it becomes like star trek lore i mean even thinking of the spock stuff right like not just the emotional side but i don't know you guys have been watching you know kind of the episodes in order i think um is this the first time they mention that spock is half human that was gonna be my question uh, jj defer to you 
No, it's not the first time that it's been mentioned, okay. but it's the first time it's the first time that we get a reference to the fact that his mother is human. So that is significant, but it's not the first time he's been called half human, Got half it. Falcon. Yeah, I was I mean, I was going to sort of bring that up actually in response to what you're saying, the whole the fact that Leonard Nimoy asked for a longer take and a lot more deep monologue. Uh this is something also uh, I was watching with my with my girlfriend and she mentioned that as well during that scene and it is i think you're right that it might not have been the original intention in a way to sort of get this deep but like to have then spock if leonard nimoy sort of prompts that out of it i think our end result still does in fact accomplish that oh Whether, yeah. yeah and so yeah i don't know i think it it just becomes sort of an intent versus results and i think the results are like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, like, I mean, Shatner's and uh, Barrett's uh, as Kirk and Chapel, their sort of monologues also reveal a lot about themselves. So I don't know if when the process those came along, if those were also supposed to be more random moments that were elevated or not. But at the very least, I mean, it's all the same writer and he at least found the focus eventually. So I think, I mean, even if it does, you're right, it's not the best version of this premise we could get because it's such a potent premise. But I still really love what we do, what we do have at the end of the day, which is, I mean, a fantastic monologue by Nimoy, practically Shakespearean as he goes through, like, I don't want to feel these emotions, but I do. I wish I was writing out in direct quotes from it, but it is such, it was such a beautiful monologue he delivers in that very purplish lighted lit conference room. And then to have Shatner follow that up with like, not being able to love anyone, which is a little, I mean, a little very 1960s <laughs> to be very gendered about it. But, uh, and here it is. This vessel I give, she takes to permit my life. I have got, I've got to live hers. That is still just so powerful, I think, in terms of the character psychology and how Shatner delivers it. And that moment after he's had his speech where he says, never let you go. And then he walks out into the corridor. And it's a tiny little moment for Shat from Shatner. It's not the focus of his big kind of performance. But he delivers it in such a great way. It's it's one of those things that um, I've, I've seen this episode dozens of times. Um, and I never really picked up on that moment before. But watching it for this, I suddenly became aware, like all the big, that's why they call her she, and all, you know, his big kind of slightly hammy kind of Shatnerian performance. It, that's all good, and it's all it's all insight into Kirk and all the rest of it, but just in that tiny little moment where it's just never going to let you go. And that's where he nails it. He suddenly, it comes right down as he's trying to pull himself together when he has the corridor cleared and, you know, so that he can walk out without his crew seeing and being affected and all the rest of it. It's such a small moment, but that's the moment for me that nails, like, the, the Kirk uh, kind of monologue. It's not the big kind of drama of um, of, of Nimoy's performance, but it's just that that one moment. Yeah. He's, he's expressed that he's got it all out, but then he's he's really focused it down to the nub of the thing. I feel like we've already written a book on a Shatner with, in just four episodes and just how like effective his acting is. In. But yeah, I, it really is that like everyone remembers the big swings and loud dramatic moments. It's, it's, this ability, it's his ability to go totally quiet that is what seals him as a great actor, I think, and that he can swing between the two so well.
Like that is, I mean, just full agree. I mean, you said JG. Yeah, and I think part of the problem um, with this episode, if you want to call it a problem, is that um, Namai and Shatner give really good performance. I do want to give a shout out to uh, Majel Barrett as well. I think she does the Christine Chapel stuff mm-hmm. as well as you could, given that I don't think it's the best material mm-hmm. of the episode. I think I think Namai's reaction to her is better than her but he's also got the better material there but i think she does a good job with what she's given i think if there is a problem i think it's um uh bruce hyde who's playing lieutenant riley he's so broad and so over the top it kind of it kind of undercuts it because like i know i know mccoy gets the line about oh it's like alcohol it removes people's inhibitions and all the rest of it but nobody else in the crew acts drunk and he really does. And it's to the, it, I, I won't say detriment, that's maybe too strong, but it's just, it in contrast, maybe that's a better way of saying it, to the way that everybody else is playing it. Namoy doesn't play it drunk. Shatner doesn't play it drunk. Um, Barrett doesn't play it drunk. But he plays it, you know, like he's staggering about the place and swinging and, and singing his Irish, you know, ditty, you know, as a, like some drunk guy in the pub. And it kind of cuts against this idea that um that we're getting into people's inhibitions even with sulu i know his swords uh, you know his sword play is a bit over the top and it's a bit kind of ridiculous but kind of um like you said rachel like like last week it was botany this week it's sword play next week it will be something else you know like that's that ends up being part of his makeup even if that's not clear watching the episodes in order but Bruce Hyde is really, I mean, he's not just swinging for the fences. He's, you know, he's way, way over them. And it kind of, it kind of cuts against the idea that it's just the removal of these inhibitions. And it's kind of, it's a little bit of a shame. It wouldn't have taken much to just dial it down or just find a little extra something in it that would maybe explain why he wants to shut himself away or, or whatever and barricade himself in engineering or, I don't know, it just... Does that feel too, is that too harsh, do you think? I, this is one of those points that got me to kind of, you know, sort of poke at it a bunch, you know, which is, yes, it, it doesn't fit with everybody else, but then nobody is doing the same thing. And I don't just mean like, you hmm. know, obviously they're different characters, right? But like, there isn't a sense of like, oh, this is what these people all like are drunk, right? Like it's, it's like different facets, you know, so you have the melancholy guy, you know, and that's where I start going like this is to, you know, to put the Doyleist explanation on it, right? Like this is really about everybody kind of fitting into a category. Like you've got kind of the melancholy guy and you've got like the urge for love and you've got the anger and you've got, you know, kind of the impulsiveness and the, um, all of these kind of different aspects, you know, and you have, whatever it was that Sulu was supposed to be, you know, because, like, as I said, they did the swashbuckling thing, but then he's just, like, running around and kind of, you know, like, just, like, I'm going to be the best at this, you know, and and there's that drive, and I, I don't, that's where I'm, like, I don't actually know how you fit all of these pieces together, um, and I'm not sure that they, it's, it's so interesting that this was a first or early episode, because you know, as I said, these these episodes tend to get used when you have something about a character you want to reveal or explore. 
And that's definitely what we get from this, right? We get that stuff about Kirk and we get that stuff about Spock, especially. Um, but, you know, as an introduction to a character, you don't know enough to, you know, get something from it. Um, and I actually went and watched the remake of this that they did for Next Generation, which they also did really early as an episode, because I was like, wow, that's an interesting choice. I wouldn't have expected that. And they use it a lot more straight to kind of be like who you know we are defining these characters in a way that made it very clear to me that there was maybe less of that going on i don't know it's it's really interesting especially because you know when i was looking at some of like the general reactions to this episode some people freaking love you know the over the top like guy singing and and wanting everybody to have ice cream and <laughs> You know, right? Like there's there's such different reactions to it. Um, I don't know if I'm actually going anywhere with this, but it, it's just like it's an interesting idea to me that um I or maybe they just didn't give them that direction. Maybe they just were like, you know what, chew on some scenery however you want. We gotta film this, you know, because no one was thinking that we're creating lore. Right. Yeah, I I think I have the same issues with uh Lieutenant Kevin Riley, <laughs> which is I mean, just missing an O there in the name for being a complete over-the-top <laughs> stereotype. But I do think that it's, it's so, yeah, it's a much weaker performance than everything else. And I remember, uh, this is the second fun fact um, from my partner, is she mentioned that, like, he was the helmsman, and he appears like, at least once more, but then Chekhov takes over his role. And they just swap the Irish for Russian and I guess get a better actor on the side, which and it makes sense if this is like supposed to be a recurring helmsman and he's giving clearly the less impactful performance in the entire episode. Uh, it makes sense that he's the one prime position to be swapped out for this new young character. Yeah, I don't think he's a great loss to the series. Uh, sorry, Bruce Hyde. Um, yeah, it's it, it's 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 a puzzler why he's allowed to go so broad. I mean, um, I think in terms of the direction, I think this is generally quite a well directed episode. But I mean, it's also a bottle show, and there's only a yeah. limited amount you can do with kind of corridors and um, you know, like a couple of rooms. So there's you know, there's going to be a, a sort of intrinsic restriction in, in what they can get away with, and I suppose one way of compensating for that is to have the characters go large it makes the sets it makes everything feel bigger it makes everything feel sort of more yeah maybe not dramatic maybe that's not the right word for lieutenant riley but you know it, it feels like it occupies the space um i also think it's nice to see um a lot of the crew getting on with just being the crew and you know spock and kirk get the big action moments or the big acting moments sorry not action big acting moments here mccoy doesn't and so the third part of the triumvirate just gets on with his job and finds a cure and 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 you know that that sort of that resolves half of the problem that they're facing you know same with uh uhura who's, yeah michelle uh, nicole's is so good in this episode mm -hmm. you know she's great the way that she bites back at kirk when he yells at her and then they kind of they have that little moment of oh you know kirk apologized to her and she acknowledges it and it has such a lovely moment like at one point janice rand gets to take the helm you know she's she's had no personality and spoilers she's not gonna get one uh, but you know she's just like immediately you know all right you take the helm get on with it. and everybody just f 
fits in there. It's like it's a proper professional organization. And it's one of the things that um, will, I say it's going to be lost. That's maybe a slight overstatement. But but just that, that sense, like the crew are getting on with their job. They're doing stuff. And people have multiple disciplines that they can get on with uh, is, is a real simple way but effective way of, of showing that this is actually like a genuine proper crew who aren't just oh the the one that brings the coffee the one that answers the phone the one that pushes the buttons or, or whatever it is you know like everybody has a proper role that they can fulfill scotty has to spend like 15 minutes of the episode pointing a phaser at a blank pit of wall <laughs> um but you know but you know he has to do that, and I like the fact that they they take the time to be methodical over that. Logically, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense that you know he has to cut open a bulkhead just to open a door. But you know, from the from the sense of kind of realism, for the sense of drama, it works because it adds to the tension. It 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 it, it functions dramatically, if even if it's not a real world situation, and it makes him seem competent he knows what he's doing he knows how to do it he can push it when he has to remove his safety margins he's able to deal with it when they get into the room he's able to go on and da, 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 da. it makes scotty feel like a real actual character who's genuinely contributing something to go back a bit i think of what you said about the other crew members not getting to do much beyond like like that we have the big kirk spock and chapel moments i i, I miss not seeing mccoy and uhura and um scotty like do their own versions of it uh, of course we have sulu also infected uh but yeah that's half still half the cast gets to have fun and i don't know i mean i guess not enough time in the episode that didn't really need to spend enough time with riley <laughs> so it's yeah i feel like if you tighten up a lot of that first half you could get to a place where we could see more from these other major characters I mean, I suppose we still only have two people in the opening credits right now. So maybe that's just part of it is, I mean, yeah, we we keep using these Uhura and McCoy characters or whatever, but maybe by episode, I mean, fourth episode aired, sixth episode written, they're still not, like, the writers aren't conscious of the fact that, oh, people want to check in with McCoy, people want to check in with Uhura and see what they're like. But it's still, it still feels like a loss in retrospect where we're not seeing these like the whole crew really display their personalities. It's just the two we always spend time with and a couple more. We know we're going to care about these characters, I think is part right. of it. And you're like, why can't I spend time with these cool people? You know, why are we with this guy that's not even a last like to the next episode or, or whatever it is. Um, so I, I 100% <laughs> I think that's fair. It's really interesting to me what the episode compresses and what it doesn't. Um, because it is, you know, by modern standards, quite a long episode, um, you know, and it has that very like 60s pacing in some ways. And I sometimes, you know, I've seen people sort of picking at the at the stuff that like, to be fair, you're like, what's the plot, you know, and going back to kind of our explicable, inexplicable thing, right? Like the guy taking his glove yeah. off and just being like, I'm gonna rope my hand all over this ice. <laughs> you're like, it's cold. Why are you even doing that in the first place? And I think there's, I was thinking about it. And I'm like, there's a degree to which the show is kind of just shorthanding like it doesn't want you to think too much about why this guy is taking his glove off because it doesn't really matter it's how they're getting to the firework factory you know and and mm -hmm. to be like oh why if they only didn't have this one idiot on the crew is to kind of miss the point right and the point is something happens that makes this happen and they are uninterested 
in thinking about what the physics are and like you know what the rationale was like a modern show would spend so much time trying to establish like you know would be very worried about the plausibility of like you know how this starts and how it happens and everything like that and this show is just like yeah okay it happened it's gonna happen don't get too tight you know tied up in knots over it so it's it's like really going fast past some of that that we would spend a lot of time on i think but then at the same time kind of you know like you were saying that that slowness that focus on um you know really showing you know scotty with the 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 beam kind of cutting into the thing and and you know taking the time to show the crew working and and all this stuff that i suspect in a modern rendition would be cut um it's just really it's really interesting to me and it's really fascinating i think it's it's fully halfway through the episode where um chapel spock and kirk are infected and we get those like centerpiece scenes and yeah i don't know i mean part of it wishes we got to the fireworks factory even faster like i appreciate the efficiency of the teasers that's something i have noticed is when you cut to credits like everything is established like what the threat of the episode is at least the episodes you've seen so far like even if the fully is go after charlie x this kid has a bad vibe at least some sort of tension is fully established within like three minutes because i guess that's the 60s logic otherwise they're going to change the channel but yeah it takes a while to get to what we really want to see which is our main characters under it and i don't know i'm kind of conflicted over appreciating the restraint or wishing we had even more of it yeah i think it's definitely a situation where it's one of those um yeah yeah you wouldn't make it like this and obviously sort of glanced up against the naked now as well with the tng uh remake and it isn't it isn't paced like this. The, the The pacing is noticeably different. And there is much more of an effort to show everybody and the crew, you know, acting out. So it's not just, it's not just your core couple of characters and one or one or two extras. But also, I, I think I lean towards preferring the pace of this one because it does, it, it feels like it ramps up on a sort of, this is really bad way of saying it, but I don't know how else to do it. But it feels like it ramps up on a kind of, um, sliding scale like you go from one two four eight sixteen thirty two sixty four you know it's it it kind of goes from one person to two and, and and there is a feel that it like genuinely takes a bit of time for this to be disseminated amongst the crew for the impact and we hear other people you know we hear like somebody's doing a big joker laugh on the intercom when they try to get through to the lab or you know somebody's dubbed love mankind and red paint on the wall so we you know we have manifestations of the fact that this is afflicting the whole crew more or sort of sort of part of the crew more and more as it kind of accelerates its transmission interesting thing to be watching just after covid yeah. but yeah but we you know it but you no know but that... grounds to criticize the guy for taking his absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. absolutely. but i'm sorry but, one, more, know... one more joke cover joke to me i do appreciate how well the direction contact traces everything in this <laughs> yeah 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 good effort in getting everybody's mobile number after they've been to the rec room uh, but it's just one of those things that, that feels Right, and I, I, again, it's something I feel more conscious of. Like, it sounds silly to say it, but it, it's something I feel is better in a post-COVID world because it, that's kind of how it happened. It went from one person to two people to four, and eventually 
it spread around the globe. Just like in this, it spreads around the ship. By blind luck, McCoy doesn't happen to get it, even although he's in proximity to people who do. It, that's kind of good. <laughs> I, I was gonna, yeah. I was gonna overstate, I was gonna overstate it there and say that's kind of, but that's really smart. And so I kind of like the fact that it it does have that long. It does take time to get to the fireworks factory, but in the real world, that's how we got to the fireworks factory. So I'm kind of okay with it. If we're talking about other ways this show is kind of ahead of its time, uh, I mean, this is a bit of a pivot, but back to our favorite character, Kevin Riley. Um, I, and this brings us back to our other quote unquote favorite topic, which is I gender relations in Star Trek. I like that his inhibitions are lowered and he doesn't just become a raging sexist. He's like, he starts off saying, oh, I love for women to take control. Yeah, that's feminism even pointing it out as a red flag. And then he starts talking about how like, oh, woman on the ship, you can let your hair down. You don't have to wear makeup. It's fine. <laughs> Which is such like a, like, I obviously the goal is to present him as a not forward thinking person. And that's such like a cleverly insidious way to do it. In that it's a, a like the concept of like the nice guy who like says he supports women's rights on the surface, but only if they're right in the different way he likes it. I don't know. It just feels very more hip than a 60s writer. And criticizing that, of course, feels more hip than I would expect from 1966. He's a bit lecherous. Yeah. It's very PG-13, but he, you know, I oh, it, I found that made me kind of uncomfortable, honestly. Oh, and maybe uncomfortable, too. But I, it's, but I think it's meant to. Yeah, intentionally so. And I like that he's uncomfortable in a way, like, I feel like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not well-versed in 60s like literature or um, pop culture or anything like that. But I feel like if you were to show some, try to show someone is a sexist in a 1960s television program, you'd be like, I hate all women. Blah, blah, blah. To show someone who's like, oh, I, I support women's rights. It, my right to be lecherous towards them. And use that as almost like a pickup line of I am supporting your rights. I don't know. It's just that little extra layer feels a little more modern than I was expecting, which I find just interesting. Just interesting to point out. It's funny that you mentioned the makeup one because I saw that as a very literal callback to an old type of um, kind of, let's say, anti-feminism, right? Where, you know, for a long time, you know, wearing makeup was, you know, like, oh, you still steal, edit, you still see versions of this in kind of like sort of the incel idea of like mm -hmm. makeup as deception. Um, but you, you had that historically too, right. Of, right. you know, that respectable women shouldn't be made up. And so that, you know, being made up is in, in a way like, um, part of that sort of that women's liberation in a weird way, like, ah, oh, you, you're going to be more pretty or whatever, but it definitely, I think was meant to put him as a, you know, especially as an old school, um, lecture mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think I think a lot of it comes from that sort of, um, and I I'm sure I'll get called out of this if I get it wrong, but I think it's second wave feminism at this point in 1966. Yeah, and and the whole concept of women's lib is obviously something which is a a, a live uh, a live subject, and it's one of it's I think it's something that we'll return to talking about quite a few times in in future episodes, but it's also that thing about. Um, like again, the idea of having a woman on the bridge, uh, you know, a competent professional, 
that doesn't seem remarkable from today's perspective. It probably doesn't even seem remarkable even 10 years after, say, say 1976, it probably wouldn't have seemed that remarkable. But it was genuinely a big deal to have characters in these positions of responsibility. Christine Chappell is another one. Um, Yeoman Rand, not so much. Yeah. But uh, you know, even Kirk gets that slightly weird line about, have you seen that Yeoman? Um, it's like, which is kind of slightly undercuts it. But, you know, I, I do think that they are doing the best that they can within the context of the time that they're existing. And there's always that, you know, uh, lazy line that kind of hacky comedians have about, you know, oh, how progressive was Star Trek because Uhura had to walk around in a skirt, which was, you know, way up to here. Um, but, you know, the, the miniskirt was an instrument of liberation. It wasn't an, in, it wasn't an instrument of, you know, kind of sexist uh, control or, or the patriarchy or whatever. Women embraced the miniskirt precisely because it was throwing off the shackles of this kind of either, I mean, in the UK, kind of Victorian or in the 50, in, in America, the kind of 50s idea of, you know, the, the sort of state housewife in, in, the, in the dress that reached down to her ankles. You know, uh, the miniskirt was a genuine uh, um, instrument of liberation for women as part of that sort of second wave feminism. And so to have, you know, like a competent woman on the bridge wearing a miniskirt was incredibly symbolic. It wasn't about, you know, being able to show a bit of leg to the men. It may also have had that. Effect, I was going to say. That wasn't, necessarily its that wasn't necessarily its primary intention. I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's something to be said for how you costume the future as you know it always needs to be a bit more edgy and like a bit more shocking and so um i would be surprised if just from the entire history of television since then if there wasn't a strong degree of these people look really good in miniskirts um but it, I, I it, it can be two things but, but the miniskirt was genuinely progressive in 1966 it, it really was yeah i i think this is it's almost like a little con, a little con. The, it can be forward thing for the time, but then also just attitudes don't change. And like yeah. the same yeah, things yeah. always come back. It's how everyone will say like the Simpsons predicted the future when the Simpsons just understood human nature and things just come around again. Yeah. It's, yeah, it is. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, and probably just interesting to think about how these things come and go in cycles and things like that. And But I, Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I am a little, I think, extra sensitive to this just because of mm -hmm. having grown up, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s, where so much of the kind of corporate brand of feminism, you know, that girls were exposed to right. was very much like, oh, she's so sexy and empowered. And, you know, kind of thinking Star Trek, like, man, seven of nine in that cat suit that like literally shows off her butt crack. You know, there's mm -hmm. a there's a degree, you know, wearing the three inch heels there's a degree to which i'm really um kind of critical of like what are you selling me here you know so so mm -hmm. like to say like yes at the time it you know kind of was on more of the cutting edge i i want to completely um validate that but i'm i guess i'm maybe just not as willing to to give them that much of the benefit of the doubt in the intention of the miniskirts no, that's fair. That's fair. I, you know, it, like, there is plenty of sexism in Star Trek, and I'm not going to claim that it is a, you know, a panacea um, for, you know, perfect representation of women. It's very clearly not that. Um, and, you know, Star Trek is sometimes incredibly progressive and sometimes incredibly uh, repressive. And it is important to call out those things. Um when they occur i think one of the problems that and this is definitely something that will come up against in in future episodes but one of the problems 
when it comes to having any kind of decent kind of capital C uh, criticism of Star Trek is uh, kind of what you mentioned, Kev. It's like, you know, it, it's things have become so set in stone that it's very hard to get away from those impressions. And, and you mentioned it as well, Rachel, like the idea like this is this is building lore, which of course this isn't, that's not what this episode is doing. It's not building lore. It's just an episode of Star Trek that other people have then gone on to construct, you know, whole towering edifices around. Um, and getting away from this idea that Star Trek is always progressive or always, uh, you know, you know, this, you know, perfect utopian vision, it's absolute bs it is not and there are many many occasions where where star trek is is really actively reactionary just you wait till we get till the end of season three kev (laughs) you know oh we've got a doozy waiting for you there but uh you know but there are times when there are real genuine efforts to um to try and portray things and you know contextually i i think um things like the miniskirt in this case work i i genuinely believe there was a real effort to uh to be progressive with that if it also had the side effect of getting the getting the a bit of leg out for the dads watching i'm sure that was i'm sure they were perfectly fine with that i'm sure that would that's just another reason to get you to tune in next week so i think in this case it is very much a case of two things but i do think some genuine credit is is deserved there seven of nine is a whole separate conversation (laughs) but as somebody who has written as somebody who's written two books on the subject of star trek voyager uh, that's something we could get into another time (laughs) well i'm gonna have to check those out um i i did want to say sorry i did want to say that I think you've hit on something that I I keep going back to, which is there's all this lore built up around Star Trek and there's all the discussions that have happened, you know, that are kind of based on the lore. And I actually am really interested in looking at these episodes kind of in context and going, what are they, what do they think they're telling? You know, why did they choose this? Like, is the miniskirt, you know, a progressive symbol? And I think you're probably right about that. I think, you know, there's there's also some other stuff going on, but like 100%, what are they attempting to do? And what society are they speaking to? And what messages, you know, do they think they're communicating is really fascinating, but is also so hard to see under kind of all the built up stories and, and mythology and, and what this ends up being in our society. And so that's kind of, you know, one of the things that, that just really intrigued me about talking about this episode because it's one where I feel like those seams show a little bit more than they might have otherwise. And now I'm thinking about like Star Trek or Phoenix pattern, like the thought of miniskirts in the 60s, seven of nine in the 90s. Um, I have been walk- working through Strange New Worlds a little more slowly. By the time we're uh, discussing this, it's about to end, but by the time we're discussing this, I also just watched episode five, Spock Amok. And I think the equivalent to there is the line where Chapel has, where she is like, uh, oh, I'm sleeping with this guy, but I don't want to put emotions into it. Uh, but it's fine, we're on the same page. And then you have Ortegas go, oh, like the girl you slept with that other time? And he's like, ah, and then it's just, it's a sort of a funny beat. And I guess what I'm saying is, oh, it's on, on the one hand, it's, oh, bisexual representation. That is great. And we see that in our 20 perspective as like very modern, hip and cool. And and then I also have the same thought, and I'm sure this is what the kids of 2040 will think. It's just like a tossed off line, and it almost just makes her seem sexier and cooler rather than actually digging into what that sexuality mm-hmm. means. 
So it's just things are repeating themselves over and over again. Like I'm, I'm in favor of uh, this character being played as bisexual and representation and all of that. It, but I don't know. It almost plays the same way where it is a little bit of uh, progressive thinking, but also a little bit of sexiness for the people attracted to women watching. I guess everything yeah. comes around again. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, I think that's entirely valid. And um, you know, one of the, one of the great sacred cows of Star Trek is going to be um, Space Seed, um, which is the episode that introduces Khan, uh, which I think is just one of the worst episodes of television I've ever seen in my life. But that's not that's not exactly a consensus view. So we will be returning to this topic in the future. Um, but you're quite right. You know, these, these, these patterns do repeat themselves. And yeah, I mean, Voyager, you know, it's, you know, I, I, I personally believe that Voyager is profoundly feminist in so many ways, but Seven of Nine is strutting around in a catsuit. You know, there's no... There's no getting away with that. And these circles are often very difficult to square. So, you know, for everything that is, um, you know, progressive, you know, you always have that bit where you think, yeah, but come on, you could have done something with this. And um, that's, I, I mean, again, in the way, that's why it's quite pleasing to see something like um, Janice Rand just being told to take the helm. And she doesn't pause for breath. She just does it. Um, and little moments like that feel far, far more progressive than, than, you know, a big speech on the subject of feminism or, you know, whatever. It's just like she's a competent character. And, you know, generally speaking, Yeoman Rand is very, very poorly served by the series. And certainly Grace Lee Whitney is. Um, that would be a topic for another time, too. But just in that little beat, just like... Uh, Yeoman Rand take the helm and she does it and that's the end of the story there's no there's no beat there's no point there's no lingering aha it's just like yeah she can do it she can get on with it that seems that's that's genuinely progressive that's something that I probably need to give more credit for because you know something you'll hear over and over again when people talk about the original Star Trek is how much it meant to them to see these characters you know on the bridge um, often that's, you know, how people talk about Uhura, but, you know, similar like, with the women. And it's really easy, you know, from my perspective now where, you know, things are not amazing, but we have, you know, more in-depth characters, you know, to be like, ah, oh, these are, you know, this is, this is fast food. Like, this is token. But, you know, there is an element where you're like, okay, actually, yeah, this was. And, and what's interesting about that, too, is it also shows the degree to which a lot about Star Trek was very intentional. Right. It was very much a, like we are going to show a vision of the future, um, you know, and, and that kind of whole Roddenberry sort of utopianism like that. That was something they were actually interested in doing, even if it you know also involved a lot of miniskirts. Um, and so I, I should like I should kind of walk myself back a little bit and give them credit for that. Yeah, I, I don't want to overspeak about the feminist thing. Apart from anything else, I'm a cisgendered male. It's not up to me to be able to, you know, mm. pass judgment on, 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 on feminism. Um, but I think there are other things in this episode which uh, which do sort of gesture towards exactly what you're saying, Rachel. It's this idea that they are making a real effort to be progressive. Um, I'm guessing that some or the majority of people who are listening to this sort of know the story. Um, but when it came to um, Sulu being a swashbuckler, they had the option of giving him like this, the fencing soil or a samurai sword. And there was an active choice made to give him uh, the, the uh, fencing foil so that he's not just being reduced to kind of like a national stereotype. Oh, he's Japanese. Of course he would have a samurai sword. They've made an active choice to make him like this swashbuckler with a, you know, a, a fencing foil. That kind of decision 
does kind of suggest that there is, you know, real genuine thought being put into the way that these characters are being portrayed. And moreover, not just falling back on kind of like a lazy stereotype, because it would be a really lazy stereotype to have like the Japanese character have like a samurai thing. And even like, you know, when he was... um, interested in botany during the man trap like we didn't get a thing about banzai trees or whatever you know it's just like he was just allowed to be interested in that thing and they steered away from you know falling back in these kind of um stereotypical um views of a particular nationality and that's again that that's good you know they are they're making active choices which isn't just falling back on the most easy or the most even audience that kind of acceptable thing so it's it's kind of adjacent but it's not the same thing and and so i i think there is definite evidence in this episode that there are choices being made which are you know genuinely trying to like make a difference to the way that these characters are being portrayed yeah and i i I mentioned that was like takei's choice to pick the foil over the samurai sword and he learned fencing and apparently did push-ups after learning he'd be shirtless to uh, make it seem more impressive. He he does, I have to say, as a small sidebar, sorry, Kev, to interrupt, he does have a much better body than Shatner did when he had to take his shirt off <laughs> <laughs> in, Char- in Charlie X, which is something that we can all be grateful for. There's a reason sorry. that please, please carry on. a screen grab of this episode or like when there's like a, you know, this is the episode, it's always him hanging off shirtless, right? Yeah. Fun, funny that. <laughs> also, I did not realize that the botany reference in this episode was actually a callback to an earlier episode. It's been a while since I've watched the whole series. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Like, I already see sort of this continuity creep in as they are keeping track of these characters and of their relationships growing. Like, you mentioned Spock has been mentioned as half human before, but this is our first real digging into it, talking about the mother and the conflict he feels over it. And we went back into how this really dramatically serves the characters. I think it's more than just callbacks. We're really learning a bit more about them every episode. And I think that's what people say, oh, TV before The Sopranos or before Buffy. It's uh, it's just all standalones and they didn't really care about arcs. And it's just da-da-da-da-da. I, I, that just doesn't give old TV enough credit. I think there is plenty of like growth. I, mean, I haven't seen any of this show yet, but I've seen in other shows of this era, like you can have growth these characters, and the writers were keeping like continuity in mind, just not as slavishly as they do nowadays, where a continuity error is like a moment of crisis for a TV show, and everyone drags it on Twitter or whatever. But the things that matter, I think, do get remembered and passed along. There's something to be said for you know even way like the 60s is very episodic television right it really does not expect you to to remember what happened last week but even if you have characters that are kind of staying the same there's still so much room for revealing you know you you can you may not be like this character's on a big journey but you can be like ah we can reveal new facets of their character we can explore why they are the way they are Absolutely. And I I think that's probably what this episode is really starting to do. Um, That whole thing that um, Spock has about, um, what's the line? Um, When I feel friendship for you, I feel shame, I think it is, Mm -hmm. or I feel ashamed. Um, And we get that first sense that not only is it sort of revealing that, you know, actually under the surface, Spock has all these kind of feelings, but that there is a genuine friendship between these two characters, which isn't necessarily 
something which has come up in the previous two episodes. I mean, they work together well enough and they're obviously shipmates and they respect each other and, and there's a trust between them. But the idea that it's more than that, that there's a friendship which underpins that, isn't particularly something which has come up in the three episodes that we've covered up to this stage. But it is absolutely something, of course. I mean, the friendship between Kirk and Spock is one of the great defining friendships in all literature, I would argue. You know, um, it, it, It's such a core part of, of what Star Trek is and also you know what Star Trek will go on to be. And this is kind of the first time that we get that mentioned. So yeah, you're absolutely right when you say there's so much to be revealed. That's true. And this in many ways, this is the start of that process. Yeah, I mean, and that's also why, like, calling back to it, it's so hard to kind of watch this episode in context, because you, you, it's such a powerful thing, you know, that kind of Kirk and Spock relationship. I mean, it's catnip, you know, to have a character who, you know, is outwardly very, you know, logical, but has all these intense emotions that can come up at, you know, um, like climactic Mm -hmm. moments and you can really feel it and you know so that stuff is is just so addictive um and it's hard not to bring that back but it also is the reason you bring it back is because this is where it starts and it is instantly just so compelling and and this might be those speaking of the friendship most compelling example of like that relationship yet I mean, it's a very 60s thing to have them start slapping each other to get their masculinity back. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, I don't know, just you really get the sense that this is the only, these are the only two people who would like dare to raise a hand against Spock or Kirk would be each other. And just like the passion of it, where it's like words won't suffice. I need to have this physical contact with you in order to get you to realize the danger and snap back to what needs to be done. I just find that so like rewarding almost. It's just even even if I wouldn't want my friend slapping me in a real life scenario, it's again it's very of the time. It works so well dramatically, I think, just to have that moment. It really reveals the degree to which the show is treating it as hysteria. In a way, because that's like the traditional, right. you know, which is itself kind of interesting when you're like, ah, this is just somebody talking about their feelings. Okay. <laughs> um, also want to point out you know so like you've got kind of kirk smacking him like you know get it together man and then like when spock smacks him back jim goes across the table which i i love just kind of like just a fun little note of i mean kind of the alienness too but but um shatner and amai really sell the hell out of that scene that's that's the thing um and you know at that point you know uh, kirk has started to struggle against the virus he realizes that he's become infected but he is still so desperate to get through to spock so that they can get this intermix formula to get the engines restarted and they really yeah again in in purely scripting terms it's maybe not the strongest written thing in the moment Uh, yeah yeah slap slap someone to get them out of the hysteria is is you know yeah, it's a bit of a cliche, yeah. but like they really sell it. That's the thing. They they just like and yeah, like the yeah, like you say, Rachel, like it's that casual slap that Spock gives Kirk, and he just flies across the room, and like you get the impression that Kirk knows how much danger he's putting himself in, really, because Spock could so easily overpower him, could so easily 
like knock seven bells out of him and he's still prepared to take the risk still prepared to take the chance just so that he can he can get through to him it's i don't know i i really think again it's another one of those moments where it, it on the one hand it's easy to sort of look at it and say you know come on but on the other hand the quality of the acting and the quality of the performances is good enough to bridge the distance more than good enough i would say it's an amazingly fun scene i mean it's very serious and everything yeah. but when you're watching it you're pulled right into it you know and, and i've i've kind of stayed more analytical with this episode and it's because when i watch it for most of it 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 doesn't suck me in to the degree where i stop noticing these things and start poking you know like start poking at them instead but like you get into this episode and you get into the scene and then like the emotional stuff is so high that i had to kind of re-watch it a few times in order to start kind of you know looking at some of the details just because it is too easy to get swept away with it yeah, I think it was lack of another conversation topic. Uh, I, I think we should talk about the ending, which is just such a randomly dropped in ending. <laughs> uh, might as well I cap it. it off with that. Cap, cap off the out-of-context ending with an out-of-context discussion about it. I did find out, oh, where was it on this Memory Alpha page? Uh, that shows how much... I mean, you, Rachel, you obviously did more research than both of us put together, it sounds like. Because <laughs> uh, I just I have always just done this on the fly. My apologies. But, okay, I can't seem to find where I read it, but it's, uh, oh, here it is on Wikipedia. Uh, it was originally intended to be a two-part episode with the going back in time ending. They would go back farther in time, and that's when it leads into Tomorrow is Yesterday, which is that the, um, that's the World War II, 1960s one. Yeah, that's the Cold War one. Yeah, 1960s one, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess then they just decided to produce them separately. But it, it is... On its own, it is just such a funny thing to drop in, which is like, well, we've discovered time travel. Let's leave. It it shows the degree to which the show doesn't like isn't interested in in that stuff, except as you know the methods right. by which they get to their stories, right? Because you put that in a modern show, people would burn the house down. You know, if you're like, yeah, we invented, we solved the problem by inventing time travel. Well, time to go to the grocery store. You know, <laughs> like people would be like, what? You can't just do that. You can't just put it in there and then drop it you know but i kind of love that you can you know in the kind of in this show and in those days where they can be like yep we did it because also like this is not what we care about i think it's uh, also really clear that they are very obviously setting up uh the possibility that they can tell other kind of stories so so far we've had a couple of um stories where they've been um exploring the galaxy and they've come across people with weird um, psychic powers and they've come across a creature uh, who was the last of their kind who could kind of uh, transmogrify so we've had a couple of um, sort of establishing stories um, and 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 a lot of these early stories are kind of setting out Star Trek stall what it can do what kind of stories it's it's capable of telling and this one which is you know like the the, the disaster it's I mean it's basically just a disaster movie in 45 minutes you know um, it's particularly disastrous for um, anybody who loves Irish ballads. But, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's setting out its stall. So the fact that it's left open-ended, I kind of I kind of like the fact that it doesn't lead into, like, the second part of a two-parter. It's just like, okay, now we've opened up another storytelling possibility. In the future, we can go to the past. Fantastic. And they will do, you know, this tomorrow is yesterday, but it's not the only time. Um, 
it's just it's a way of the show opening its horizons, broadening its horizons. And and I, I like the fact that there isn't then an immediate kind of follow up. One of the weird things and I, I, it always strikes me, even although I know this is true, it always strikes me strange. The very first proper Star Trek two parter is the best of both worlds. And so that's going to take us almost until the 90s before we get one. We I know there's the menagerie to come in this, but that's not really a proper two-parter. That's just an excuse to recycle the cage. So it's going to take us a long time before we get to a genuine two-part episode of Star Trek. And I really like that. I like the fact that this is just like, okay, well, we've invented time travel. Guess we'll come back to this at some point. It really goes back to the point about the frontier aspect of the unknown that maybe today you just invent time travel and it's such a big and crazy universe that that's just like tuesday you know and that maybe that will be another thing to explore but that it isn't world changing in some way because you're already off the map so that's just it's a really cool callback and just to bring us full circle comparing this to modern trek i mean i think it is almost depressingly significant that like every of the five Trek series we have on the air right now, um, two are like prequels or sidequels. Well, like three, I guess, are like direct continuations or spinoffs. Two of the original series, one of Voyager, and then we have Picard, which is a direct sequel, Next Generation, and then Lower Decks is the comedy show. There is no pure Star Trek that is pure Star Trek. Even Strange New Worlds, which is most trying to ape the old formula of no con not much continuity just trying to tell a story by story thing it's set on the enterprise uh roughly a decade before the episode we're discussing right now like they just can't escape continuity on these newer shows unless you're lower decks in which case you're um just doing comedy which is i mean Laura, i love lower decks i don't want to dismiss it but yeah it's there is no final frontier in the franchise right now I kind of love Lower Decks just for that reason. Like mm -hmm. in some ways, yes, it is a comedy and it has a lot of silliness, but it, especially once it got its vibe, it, it really embodies that like Star Trek without maybe, it's funny because it has all of those references, right. but it really isn't like, it knows that it's not contributing to lore because it's Lower Decks. And so it allows it that more freedom to just kind mm -hmm. of do whatever it wants. And I think it has confidence in the audience. I think that's the great thing about Lower Decks. I love Lower Decks as well. Of course I do. Um, but it just has confidence that the audience will keep up. So there are lots of funny in-jokes and references or whatever. But they don't laboriously explain anything. They don't have to go over the top. There isn't big flashing arrows pointing to it saying, ha-ha, look, a reference. It's just like they have confidence in the audience's ability to keep up. And, you know, if you've seen those old episodes of Star Trek and, and you recognize the, the, the quote or the reference or whatever it is, that's fine if you don't it doesn't really matter it's not a core tenant of the show it's just something which is funny for long-term fans but if you're just watching it the first time round, well okay it doesn't really doesn't really make all that big deal and that shows confidence in the audience and i think that's what a lot of these kind of prequels cycles all the rest of it reboots abrams verse universes all that stuff it feels like the confidence in the audience has been diminished oh we can't have a final frontier anymore because people won't have 17 references to that one episode of Deep Space Nine that occurred in season five and like only the hardcore fans will remember. Like, yeah, you don't need to do that. You can just like tell your stories. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, coming to an episode like The Naked Time is so 
refreshing is that that's all it's doing. It's just telling a story. A story that was nominated for a Hugo, one of the nine TOS episodes that it have been. Uh, it won't it won't win among the six, six episodes, but it was of the ones nominated from this year. It was one of them. Uh, that's my last <laughs> fact. And yeah, I think we are ready to move on to recommendations. I think we are. So, um, Rachel, shall we start with you since you're our guest? Uh, what would you like to recommend? So I'm going to use my opportunity to recommend that everybody go find uh, books by James Allen Gardner who's one of my favorite sci-fi writers, who is an unfortunately obscure Canadian sci-fi writer, but honestly, some of the best sci-fi I've ever uh, read and isn't quite in a Star Trek-like world, but definitely has a really interesting take on sort of space travel and sort of what interstellar civilizations look like in terms of, you know, there's um, really advanced species who have just basically enforced a law that you're not allowed to leave your solar system if you've killed anybody and you're not allowed to bring anything that could kill anybody out of your solar system. And it's just magic. It just works that way. And the ways that this kind of shapes society um, and, you know, so you can't have any like intergalactic wars, but that doesn't stop, you know, things from happening. And so one of my favorite books is called Vigilance and it's about a, um, I didn't even notice this when I first read it as a kid, but it's about a, middle-aged poly woman who has grown up this is going to be relevant to covid when she was a kid um there was a plague that killed 90 percent of the population um it spared all the humans on this one planet but she's kind of grown up with the trauma of that and you know is kind of a messed up person in a lot of ways and so she signs up to join kind of the planet's um it's not really the police, but their job is to sort of, they're like auditors. Um, and so they have actually implants in their head that makes it impossible for them to kind of lie to themselves or to ignore things. Um, and so, you know, it's a lot about what that does to somebody who has been like nothing but lying to herself um, and has all this self-loathing. But honestly, the plot is actually about killer robots. Um, it's a murder mystery about killer robots and it's hilarious. Um, but it's also just a really fascinating book and in, in so much of the best ways of Star Trek or of both Star Trek and sci-fi where you can have like an intensely entertaining plot about, you know, killer robots, but then you're like, ah, but this speaks deeply to trauma and the human condition. So Vigilant, James Allen Gardner, check it out. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic. As is my want during the recommendations, I was Googling James Allen Gardner and added him to my library to read list. So yeah, the, the first of those um, League of People's books is now <laughs> queued up on that app. That sounds amazing. Awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Kev, what have you got for us this week? Uh, I just finished the most recently released uh, game in the US, the most recent ever in the Ace Attorney series, which I might have plugged on our previous podcast, but I'll plug on this one because I love it. So um, the Ace Attorney series... Are video games, I guess, is the best medium to describe when you buy them or you buy video games on a computer or on a Nintendo Switch or a PS5. But I don't expect, like, to be like, oh, I don't have good reflexes or I can't shoot things while I can't play video games. They're about playing as a lawyer where you get to solve murder mysteries, essentially. Like, Perry Mason sort of meets an Agatha Christie novel, kind of. You start each uh, chapter of these games where you get a person to defend in a case that's going to trial. You then walk, you then through like text options, very 
mist-like walk around and uh well not mist like because real time it's all text based with visuals uh, what's the comparison I'm looking for like monkey island sierra adventure games that sort of era kind of it's bringing back you investigate certain locations you pick up evidence you talk to people to get more evidence and then eventually once you've collected everything you get to a point where you go to trial and you're then you listen to testimony you can present evidence at certain parts of testimony you can ask questions within the limited sort of what's programmed into the game scope um, at parts of the testimony and you can then uncover the truth. It sounds boring, I guess, when I describe it, but these are extremely well-written mysteries. I don't use that Agatha Christie comparison lightly. It really is just well-written, well-developed um, cases and like whodunits that get to get to unspool. Uh, the characters are all fantastically written. I love, you get so attached to them. I love them all. And they really tell fantastic stories. It, there's just, they're just fantastic. I love these games so much. Some of the best mystery writing out there in these days. And just the little bit of putting you in the driver's seat, I think just really enhances the experience overall. Um, right now, you can get Ace Attorney Trilogy, which is the remaining, the first three games that were developed in the early 2000s. Uh, they're all all remastered and repackaged. Like I said, everywhere you can buy games. PC, Switch, PS5, I think on phones as well. Where, however you can get to them, even if you have an iPad. Um, and those are just like the original ones you start with. Those are fantastic. The ones I just finished were The Great Ace Attorney, which takes place in Victorian London. And those are specifically are such a great take. The original trilogy takes place in the relative modern day, whereas these new ones take place... Uh, in the past, they feature a character called Herlock Sholmes for playing the English translation due to rights issues, the Sherlock Holmes. Uh, a fantastic character, one of the best interpretations of that character I've ever seen, where it just totally strips away his mystique, and he is just an arrogant idiot who is smart at solving cases, but instead of like being, oh, I'm so cold and personable and intelligent, he's instead very warm and goofy and has no social skills. It's a really good version of that character. Um, and also just digs a lot into Japanese-British relationships at the time. A lot of alternate history going on. It's a very heightened, wacky universe, both in the present day and the past. But I think still digs into a lot of, like, historical things going on and, like, well, racism at the time and things like that in a very, in a way that's not preachy, but also very dramatically effective. Um, yeah, just... Yeah, just so, and that's the great Ace Attorney. That is two games bundled together. Also, everywhere you can find any video game. Um, yeah, video games based on reading instead of any sort of reflexes. So I recommend them to everyone because of that. They are just simply fantastic. The Ace Attorney trilogy and the Great Ace Attorney Chronicles. Um, there's also other Ace Attorney games set released and set between those two that aren't widely available unless you have an old Nintendo DS you can break out or 3DS, but uh, hopefully those will get more widely available soon. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I'm going to go for a TV show this week, which means I'm going to recommend uh, Slow Horses, um, which is on Apple TV, and is basically a, a, a thriller, a spy thriller, I suppose. Um, it's about uh, an officer called River Cartwright, um, who is basically demoted and kicked down scares after um, screwing up a training mission. Um, where he is overseen by his boss, um, 
who, there's no polite way of saying this. Um, Gary Oldman. Why is Gary Oldman in this? I have no idea, but he's fantastic. Um, he's overseen by Gary Oldman, or the character uh, Jackson Lamb, um, who is kind of an uncaring, filthy slob. Um, and as the sort of show goes on, uh, a, a British Asian uh, Muslim uh, character is kidnapped by a bunch of far-right fascists uh, called the Sons of Albion. Um, and the show was basically about uh, trying to resolve that situation. Um, Kirsten Scott... Yeah, try that again. Kirsten Scott Thomas is in it. Um, she is utterly fantastic. Um, and it's just a really effective, tight little spy thriller. So if you enjoy... Um, thrillers, if you enjoy uh, you know, BBC show Spooks, uh, there's a bit of James Bond in there, of course, because that's inevitable. Uh, there's a bit of Smiley's People and kind of Le Carre. So there's, it's a whole bunch of stuff going on. It's an incredibly propulsive series. It's only six episodes, so it's really easy to burn through in, in a night or a couple of nights. Gary Oldman is just beyond phenomenal in it. You, you watch the first couple of episodes and you kind of wonder, like, he's good in this, but why is he in this? Because it's not necessarily something that immediately seems like it requires his ability. And then once the story kind of kicks up a gear um, and, and kind of him and the, and the lead characters need to go on the run, suddenly you completely understand why he's been cast in this. It's just phenomenal. It's a great performance. Um, it's kind of weird that Gary Oldman is in an Apple TV show, but I guess that's where we are at the moment. And there's just so much to enjoy in the show. All the characters are great. Everybody feels real and fleshed out and you know apple tv is really developing a niche for itself and in, in producing shows that you just don't think are going to be that great and then turn out to be just brilliant beyond words um and this is kind of another entry into that genre uh the show's already been renewed for a second season and i believe it's also been renewed for a third and fourth as well i'm incredibly excited to sort of see where it goes um so yeah that's that's my recommendation this week uh slow horses it's just it's just really really good television i mean i do like apple tv's tendency to give things four seasons after a successful first season just because <laughs> I, at least I know they're not Netflix now. I, that's probably the reputation they're trying to book against. Um, with Netflix being the extreme, we're going to design ourselves with like very distinct and unique shows as opposed to shows that the algorithm says is good. And we're going to make sure they have a proper run unlike uh, on, and not have everyone be paranoid. It's going to be canceled after three seasons. So yeah, I, I love this Apple TV renaissance. It might be one of my favorite streaming services, uh, give or take HBO with its such impressive library. But all of these originals on HBO Apple, is great. Yeah, and HBO has to be the default best because it's it has everything ever created by Warner Brothers, a company with a century-long history. But um, yeah, I mean, as far as some like the original stuff coming out, yeah, I, I'm loving all of Apple stuff, so I'm probably will check out the Slow Horses. Sounds fantastic. I love that these recommendations span all media and genres. Like we have such a good slice oh, of yeah. different. We, we try to mix it up for sure. Yeah, we're, we're always encouraging people to bring their A-game when it comes to uh, recommendations. And um, uh, speaking of, of uh, recommendations, um, would you uh, like to plug something? Is there something you would like to plug in terms of your own projects, yourself, your Twitter, or uh, anything else that you're involved with? I am not involved in anything. Well, actually, I do have something to plug. Uh, you can yell at me on Twitter about my bad Star Trek opinions at Novium, that's N-O-V-I-U-M 258. But I also make wine for fun, and we oh. have a little Instagram for our winemaking. 
That's Novak and Mason Sellers, N-O-V-A-K, and Mason, M-A-S-O-N, Sellers. So if you want to see some cool stuff about winemaking and maybe in some future year buy wine if we make that happen, um, check it out. Oh, that's brilliant. I I drink wine for fun and I'm doing it right now. So that's <laughs> very, very serendipitous. Yeah, exactly what we're looking from for a plug, a plug that all our listeners can enjoy. Uh, all right. Uh, as far as our plugs, uh, you can email us, you at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, you. I am on Twitter at K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R, Kev Kozer. And you can also listen to me. I'm a frequent guest on Rowan Kaiser's podcast, Total Massacre. You can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. And he's, his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, where he and his co-hosts go through every Beatles song one at a time. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. And yeah, I think that's it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I usually separate the and that helps other people find us. But uh, no, I think that covers it all. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And um, thank you, Rachel. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is so much fun. Of course. It's been an absolute blast. Um, and I think there we can probably draw a veil over things. Next week, we will be progressing through season one of Star Trek, which means we are going to be covering the enemy within. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>